Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 160, The Constitutional Convention, part 4, The Imperial Congress. Now before we begin, I'd just like to make a little announcement. As I think most of you should know, there is a book version of the podcast as well. It's essentially a modified version of the podcast transcript, sort of tidied up so it makes better sense of reading, and I have edited it slightly. Arguments get moved around and I make slightly different points. The first book in the American series, Volume 1, A New World, took us from 1607 up to 1677. Uh, Volume 2, The Colonial Period, took us from then up to the close of the Seven Years' War in 1763. And then this new release, uh, Volume 3, The American Revolution, takes us from 1763 up to 1789, so slightly ahead of where we are in the actual podcast series. There are about three more episodes, well, this one and the two next episodes, uh, which are included in that. So if you want to get ahead of the main podcast series, you can buy that book now. It's available on Amazon. If you just search Jamie Redfern in Amazon, uh, those books will come up along with the Alexander the Great series book. Um, so if you want to buy that, it would be a great way to uh, so show some uh, support from the show. Thank you very much, and uh, now let's get into it. Uh, episode 160, the Constitutional Convention Part 4, the Imperial Congress. So last time out, we covered the Philadelphia Convention from June 15th to July 16th in 1787. Uh, this momentous month saw the introduction of the New Jersey Plan, in opposition to Madison's Virginia plan. The New Jersey plan was proposed by the smaller states and wanted more equal power for the states who feared that the larger states would dominate under the population-based Virginia plan. Eventually, the Connecticut Compromise was reached, whereby the lower house of Congress would be portioned through direct taxation, ergo, population with enslaved peoples counting as three-fifths of a person, and each state being represented equally in the Upper House of Congress. This is the foundation for the House of Representatives and the Senate, respectively. With the small states versus large states issue resolved, the convention swiftly moved on to other problems, specifically around Article 6 of the Virginia Plan, I'll briefly quote my own summary of Article 6 from episode 158. Quote, The national legislature should have all powers held by the Congress of the Confederation, as well as greater power to legislate where the states had been incompetent, to protect the harmony of the Union and to force the states to fulfil their duty. End quote. Roger Sherman of Connecticut, who you'll recall had proposed the Connecticut Compromise, suggested that rather than using this vague phrasing, the powers of Congress should be explicitly enumerated. This was defeated, largely because Sherman had not included the power of direct taxation on his enumerated powers. Uh, Bedford of Delaware proposed the power, quote, to legislate in all cases for the vernal interests of the Union and also in those to which the states are separately incompetent. End quote. Randolph of Virginia, who had been the person to propose the Virginia plan, thought this went too far, but Bedford thought it no more significant a grant than the one proposed in the Virginia plan. 
Bedford's motion passed six states to four, but the nature of the cloat clearly demonstrated the break that had happened, meaning that small states versus large states was no longer the primary divide. Most small states backed the Bedford Amendment, while Connecticut opposed. And of the large states, Massachusetts and Pennsylvania, both supported the amendment while Virginia voted against it. While the amendment passed, nobody considered the method permanently closed. Indeed, smaller debates would happen, in particular dealing with the presidency. Madison and Wilson both argued passionately for the executive being at least partly elected by people rather than selected by Congress, wanting the public involved in the decision. Governor Morris agreed, but more out of distrust of the legislature than in trust of the people. On July 17th, the day after the Connecticut Compromise, the convention voted for selection of the executive by Congress, but many were unhappy with this. The convention proceeded to then argue about term lengths, re-election, impeachment and vetoes, not reaching a consensus. Aware of how much they had to do, whenever they couldn't agree, they moved swiftly on to the next issue deciding they would solve the matter with the same system that had solved the small versus large state debate, a committee. A committee of detail was established, due to report back to the convention on August 6th. Meanwhile, the convention continued to discuss the executive. Wilson and Madison wanted electors chosen by the people, and Madison also wanted the executive and judiciary to be able to at least partly revise laws. This can be difficult to understand for the modern student of history. When we discuss the early Americans wanting a balance of power, we naturally assume that their main fear was power being concentrated in the hands of a single person. There are certainly aspects of that in the politics at play here. Remember how the New Jersey plan proposed an executive consisting of multiple people. It's an understandable assumption to make. When someone in the Western tradition thinks of a republic being destroyed through power concentration, they naturally think of the end of the Roman Republic and power being concentrated in Julius Caesar and then Augustus, forming the empire. This would have been at the tip of the tongue of every delegate at the Philadelphia Convention. They all knew their Roman history. I've mentioned before how Madison used classical comparisons to make his points. When you think of the dominant power in American politics today, most people think of the presidency. You also think of who the Americans were fighting. In the popular consciousness, it's King George. To quote Homer Simpson from The Simpsons, Season 9, Episode 5, The Cartridge Family, in a scene where Homer is defending the Second Amendment, quote, If I didn't have this gun, the King of England could just walk in here any time he wants and start shoving you around. Do you want that? Huh? Do you? End quote. However, this isn't really the way the Founding Fathers thought. As you know, having just listened to a massive episodic arc, of the Americans fighting the British from the Stamp Act through to the Revolution, Parliament was the primary institution they were fighting, the legislature. The delegates at the Constitutional Convention had watched the state legislatures dominate their various political arenas and absorb every power they could. 
The legislature was the primary branch of government. It wouldn't be until the presidencies of Jackson and Polk that the imperial presidency started to emerge. In the final constitution, Congress is Article 1, not the presidency. With this in mind, it makes sense that the great fear held by men like Madison and Wilson was an overpowerful Congress. With an executive chosen by Congress, this would be all but guaranteed, if you will, an imperial Congress. The executive and the judiciary needed to be strengthened to prevent this. Finally, on July 26th, this mess of ideas and decisions we've been dealing with over the last few episodes was handed over to the Committee of Detail, which was then tasked with forming a draft constitution. It had to decide the powers of Congress, the nature of the executive, as well as a hand grenade thrown in by Charles Coatesworthy Pinckney of South Carolina, who said that his state would not support anything that did not protect against the emancipation of enslaved persons, or the taxation of slaves. The members of the Committee of Detail were Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut, Nathaniel Gorham of Massachusetts, James Wilson of Pennsylvania, Edmund Randolph of Virginia, and the chair of the committee, John Rutledge of South Carolina. On August 6th, the committee made their report. They used the Articles of Confederation, the Virginia Plan, and earlier decisions of the convention as starting points, and added some ideas of their own. It didn't give the general power to Congress that Bedford proposed, but it would have the power to tax in proportion to a census, and to make laws necessary for executing the powers of the government. They recommended that the electors be the same as those who would choose the state legislatures. Governor Morris was concerned that this would invite tyranny, and recommended that electors be limited to landowners who would be unwilling to sell their vote. John Dickinson agreed with this. Wilson, Ellsworth, Mason and Routledge all disagreed. Madison couldn't make his mind up, but when Franklin opposed it, the convention followed Franklin and voted the amendment down. All this happened quite speedily, and was typical of the convention's behaviour during August. By this point, the delegates were all familiar with each other and knew each other's positions. They were able to work with speed for the most part, but there was one final dilemma to face them. At its heart was slavery. The Committee of Details had recommended that Congress be unable to tax the importation of slaves. It was clear that South Carolina and Georgia would not pass the convention's proposals if slavery was not protected, but there were many who despised slavery and didn't want to protect it in the Constitution. These included John Dickinson, Rufus King, and George Mason. Mason said that slave masters, quote, bring the judgments of heaven on a country, as nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next, they must be in this. By an inevitable chain of causes and effects, providence punishes national sins by national calamities. End quote. It's quite possible that Mason believed what he said, but he too was a slave-owning Virginian planter. The answer to this problem was a different problem related to trade. As Madison had predicted, 
conflicts between the states had already started to become sectional, reflecting different regional interests between North and South. The North wanted to protect merchant interests, while the South wanted to protect planters. The South could easily see a world where a Congress dominated by the Northern states would pass a Navigation Act blocking foreign-owned ships from carrying American goods. With no foreign competition, the northern merchants would hold all the power in this dynamic. Meanwhile, the northern states could see a world where they were unable to conduct a reasonable trade policy because they would be held hostage by a small clique of resistant southern states. This led to the final great compromise of the convention. The southern states would back modifying the two-thirds majority for a navigation act to pass Congress to a simple majority, while the northern states would back prohibiting Congress from banning the slave trade before 1808. A bitter Governor Morris suggested they word this, quote, Importation of slaves into North Carolina, South Carolina and Georgia shall not be prohibited, end quote. However, Madison's take was the more fitting, quote, Great as the evil is, a dismemberment of the Union would be worse, end quote. On August 31st, a final committee was selected to wrap up the last few issues. The extent of congressional power and the election of the executive. They proposed to keep a strong Congress, although they did weaken the powers proposed earlier in the convention, going with, The legislature shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defence and general welfare of the United States. They also specifically weakened the Senate, taking away the power to make treaties, select the members of the Supreme Court and ambassadors, and to create money bills. This was accepted by the convention, but the method of selecting the executive was a bit more complicated. They agreed that the president should be elected indirectly through an electoral college, would serve for a four-year term, and re-election would be permitted. This too was agreed by the convention, but there was a disagreement over what would happen if a candidate failed to win a majority of the Electoral College. The committee proposed that the Senate would select from the five candidates that had received the most votes. This would be acceptable to the smaller states, whose opinions could be ignored in the House of Representatives. This was deeply opposed by Mason and Wilson, fearing the powers that this would give the Senate given how few members it would have. With only 13 states, it's worth remembering that the Senate would only have 26 senators. Once again, Roger Sherman managed to come to a solution. Voting would take place in the House of Representatives, but with voting taking place by state delegation. With this last decision made, it was now time to account for presentation. A committee of style and arrangement was selected, including Madison and Hamilton, but the real work was done by Governor Morris, who had a talent for editing. A number of delegates refused to sign the document that had been created, including Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut, Luther Martin of Maryland, Elbridge Gerry and Caleb Strong of Massachusetts, George Mason and Edmund Randolph of Virginia. They had various reasons. Sometimes they disagreed with the decisions made by the convention, and sometimes they disagreed with the principles of a constitution. 
but 39 of the 55 did sign, including Roger Sherman of Connecticut, Gwynning Bedford and John Dickinson of Delaware, Rufus King of Massachusetts, Alexander Hamilton of New York, Benjamin Franklin, Governor Morris and James Wilson of Pennsylvania, Charles Coatesworth of Pinckney and John Rutledge of South Carolina, James Madison and George Washington of Virginia. This wasn't the end of the story. The Constitution had been written, but it now needed to be ratified. This is where we'll turn our attention to next. As a companion to this episode, we'll have another episode covering the Constitution itself, but please join me after that when we get into the debates provoked by the Constitution. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then. Thank you.